Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're gonna get started. Welcome to the Interloop Radio. I'm Rachel Koontz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinnerlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there here on the Interloop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. Sometimes we play clips of local writers reading their work at our monthly reading series. Other times we invite those writers, as well as other members of the community, to join our discussion. On today's show, let's discuss the publishing industry. I feel like we do this a lot. Do we? Because <laughs> it's a subject we know a lot about. Is it? No. <laughs> so tell me, Cordy, how do you how do you get published? Um, well, it dep- so it depends on the type of writing I'm doing, right? At this point, um, I've been a freelance kind of science writer for a good amount of my life. And sometimes that means I'm writing content for people who have publications or organizations that have publications. And it's kind of a set up relationship there. Um, but most of the time it means pitching editors mm-hmm. and getting to know the publication and figuring out what their style and shtick is or what's in the zeitgeist, what people are reading right now. Um, so do you find that the more you are published, the more likely it is yeah, for to sure. get published? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and part of that has to do with, again, establishing these relationships with editors, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, because once someone knows you, they... They know you're good for it on one hand. You know, many people will pitch things or and say, yeah, I'm going to do this story. And then there's no return. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, depending on how difficult of a writer you may be, <laughs> people <laughs> do or don't want to work with you. Right. Um, but that world is a little bit different, I think, from submitting strictly creative mm-hmm. pieces, right. as we know. Um, right. So yeah. 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 Though, I don't know, the, the few, like, essays... Like creative nonfiction essays I've done, I have been republished in the same journal after the first time. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So I think. Yeah, I feel like there's this pressure as a writer to build your resume, to get, you know, that list of magazines in your bio. That's right. That's (laughs) right. You've been published at, you know, even if like in your mind, you're like, is anybody reading these magazines? (laughs) Um, But there's all this pressure to, you know, just get more and more magazines on the list of places that you've been published. But does that really help you get a book deal? I I wouldn't know. <laughs> I don't have I a book length manuscript, so I, I could not say. Um, I'm happy with my my pieces here and there. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably where I'll stay for a while. Um, yeah, I've been doing all this research about publishing because I do have a book length manuscript. I know. Manuscript. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I feel like 
you know, on the one hand, you you think that you need all the you need all this cred, right, right. to get somebody to be interested in, in you. But then on the other hand, you know, there there are these experts who are saying, well, that doesn't That's help not... you that much, really. You just like you still have to query, you still have to send in right. the blind submission unless you have contacts. Um, and you know, maybe it would make them more interested if they saw a couple of fancy magazines in your bio, but maybe not. Sure. And I think another thing today, there are so many new, um, literary magazines and online literary sites, stuff that are popping up that people aren't necessarily familiar with them all anymore either. You know, for a while it was a half a dozen or a dozen of the big names where it's like, yeah, okay. Like everyone who's everyone has been published there. Right. And now you can have that list that may be quite long of things. And then there's, it doesn't mean one is valued more than the other, but I don't know how much weight that still holds. In, yeah. In- because the landscape is changing. Mm-hmm. Like what, which magazines are respected is changing. Right. And by whom? And by like, which generation is right. reading these right. magazines, right? <laughs> like, yeah. is anybody really reading the Georgia Review anymore? I don't know. <laughs> is anybody out there? Is anybody- um but it's also you know it it also brings to mind for me the the whole idea of the mfa program and Mm -hmm. how we're sort of creating this monster where we like form writers in the mfa program and then those people go on to be the readers for these magazines and then you know they and they want to see the same things that they saw in their mfa program so then how do you get real diversity diverse voices when we're like creating this monster of just like Drones, almost. Oh. <laughs> MFA drones? MFA drones. <laughs> Courtney and I both have MFAs, so we're not hating. Be, no, no, not at all. It could be, it could be like, that could be the new sci-fi, MFA drones. Um, <laughs> no, I think you're right. There is definitely a, I don't have words this morning. Um, Assembly line? No, no, no. <laughs> it's like this visual field um, for people in terms of, well, I, I say this, okay, I, I'm, I'm part of a book club with someone who is more of a visually artist oriented, but has started doing more writing. Um, and oft times we're reading, well, we were reading through Obama's book list for a while, mm. um, but oft times it'll be a new author mm-hmm. um, and you can just taste the MFA-ness on the pages. <laughs> it's like, right? I'm like, this is beautiful and really, really well done. And I see exactly what they were doing here and why they did it. Because yes. that is... And what they were drawing what, from. Yeah. Exactly. That is what you were told to do, how it was told to be. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it is limiting in some ways, but we're all also still really receptive to it because it does have that certain magic and yeah. craft. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, I want to bring in our guest. I'm sure he has plenty to say on this subject more than us. Um, Let's see. Coming up, we'll hear from Tope Falaran. Stay tuned. started we're officially getting started not teasing you this time (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been discussing literary prizes and the publishing industry, and now we'd like to welcome Tope Falarin, winner of the 2013 Kane Prize for African Writing and author of A Particular Kind of Black Man. Welcome, Tope. So good to be here. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, yeah it's great to have, to have you. So I recently won a, a prize. Wait, um, is, it, is, it, is it out in the open now? Can we talk about it? <laughs> it but um, I'm going to just put you on the spot and say, so now I'm getting published with Simon & Schuster, right? <laughs> <laughs> is that how that works? Immediately. That's how that works, right? Yeah, have they reached out? <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they, I, I, mean, I expect yeah. a message on my phone. <laughs> they as actually as we're, we're knocking here. on the door right before oh, you really? came is that, in. Is that that's what that was. The nice yeah. gentleman yeah. from Simon & yes. Schuster. Oh, yeah. I recognize him, actually. Yeah, it's... It's it's an interesting process, you know. As you said, I was fortunate enough to win the Kane Prize back in 2013, um, and it came like it was for my the first story I'd ever published, a story called Miracle. And I was um, I spent a long time working on that story, and I was elated when it got out. And I I'll never forget like when I published it. I you know they asked you to kind of uh, uh, submit a contributor like sort of bio mm-hmm. and I put my my email earnestly in my bio because I was expecting all these people to email me <laughs> to tell me how incredible the story was Amazing. of course not one message oh, wow. uh, was sent my way Aww, no, um, fan <laughs> no, no fan mail no no fan mail and what happened is that a, a mentor of mine a guy named Helen Habila who teaches yes. at George Mason uh, I like you know, I was in that phase in my life where, you know, like some of the rappers I admired, I was like always walking around with a copy of this of my story on my person. Nice. And so, right, right, right. <laughs> and so uh, and I used to co-host a radio show on WPFW. Like I would occasionally come oh, cool. in and talk with writers about books. And so he was the guest that day. Hmm. What actually used to happen is that the host of that show would call me in if she knew that there was a writer on that I liked. Okay. And so I would be at work like in my sort of my government job with my suit and tie. She would say, hey, Tope, so-and-so is coming in. I'd give an excuse to my boss. I'd run over to the studio. We'd do the interview. I'd run back to my job. And so she called me that morning and said, oh, Helan's coming in. And so I rushed over to the studio. We interviewed him together. And then as he was leaving, I gave him a copy of my story. And and he kind of rolled his eyes. I saw him. He, he says he didn't do this, but I saw him roll his eyes a little bit. I can picture yeah. that. I know. I can. Yeah. But then uh, he landed wherever he was and he called me and he said, I read it on the train. I really liked it. Oh, wow. Um, and I think you should think about submitting this for the Kane Prize. And so I never wow. for a moment thought about submitting my work for the Kane Prize because I was born in America. The Kane Prize is for African writers. But there is a clause in the prize where if one of your parents is born in Africa, then you're quali- then you okay. um, are eligible for the prize. And both of my parents are born in Nigeria. So I submitted my story for the prize, my first ever publication. Uh, hmm. Fast forward four or five months and they tell me I've been shortlisted and they're going to fly me out to London for Amazing. a series wow. of events with the other four <laughs> shortlisted writers. I was the least published of the of the five. I think the youngest, I think, as well of the five, if I'm not mistaken, well, the three or four of us are roughly the same age. Um, but we did all these wonderful events around London, these readings, all these people came out and I was just elated to be in that sort of circle of people. Uh, and then on the day of the award ceremony, it's a really, it's, it's a wonderful event. You know, they, all these like sort of writers and critics and all these people from uh, Britain come to Oxford for the actual award ceremony. Mm. And it's, they kind of do it like the Oscars, you know, so nice. they have all these, they <laughs> just sit the you, carpet. they sit you down, yeah, they roll, and you, you mingle 
And then you're sitting there like nervous the entire time because they wait until the very last moment to announce who. Oh, so you don't even know. You don't even know. No, we're sitting there and they have like the media's there. Oh my God. This is like the Oscars. (laughs) Genuine reaction. Yeah. And so they announced the prize and it was this incredibly. What actually happened before is that the administrator of the prize will pull you out right before to say, hey, you won, collect yourself because you have to give a speech. (laughs) So we were all like looking around to see like who's who's going to pull out. And I saw her walking toward me and I was like, really? And she pulled me out. She gave me a big hug. She said, you won, you know, like collect yourself. And the press was aware of this. So the moment we walked back in, like there were cameras that like were beating Ah! in my face. Like the BBC, Reuters. uh, It was insane. And so they announce my name. I go up. I give this, you know, speech. And then immediately afterwards, there's this gauntlet of, of interviews. Like wow. that night, wow. the following morning, I went to the BBC. I did interviews with all these publications in Europe, NPR, um, all kind. I was they they threw me on the BBC like news live, and they asked me to read my story. Oh, my <laughs> it was God. an insane series of situations. <laughs> and so I say that all to say that like I was convinced. Like okay, I'm in. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The book is out. This has happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I got it. You know, the funny thing that happened, too, is that I had sent an email to an agent like a few months before, and I got the quickest rejection I had ever received in my life, a five-minute rejection. I sent the email out. I got the rejection in five minutes. I went back to my room. That that does feel like a record. Yeah, it was a record. I was like, wow. (laughs) She read the first, you know, sentence. I was like, like, nope. Nope. The first email in my inbox was from this agent. So I'm assuming it was like an intern or someone who had yeah. kind of thrown me out of the slush. And she's like, you know, I read the story and I love it and I'd love to represent you. And it turns out that she is my agent, Maria Massey. And oh, so wow. she's okay. she's been a wonderful agent since 2013. Um, and again, I don't blame her. I'm sure it was somebody else in her office who took a look at that. But, you know, I had a collection, what was then a collection of short stories and a number of people asked to see them, sent it around. And, you know, the thing that happened was that this was a moment when I think, and I think this is still the case, there's an expectation for the kind of writing that somebody who wins the King Prize is, is supposed to produce, mm-hmm. right? It's supposed to be like a story of something happening in war-torn Africa or an immigration story right. to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't writing any of, I wasn't writing that. I was writing, you know, about a, a Nigerian-American kid who's growing up in America and the kind of things that he experiences. Um, and there wasn't, I, I think from their perspective, there wasn't really a market for that because I think they're accustomed to, again, selling certain kinds of fiction. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this in depth, perhaps at some other point. But um, I think this has to do as well with the kind of criticism around literature that's happening Absolutely. and the kind of writing that's prized, you know. So it was interesting that I won the prize and then that wasn't enough to convince mm-hmm. some, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the nice Simon and Schuster gentleman yeah. that I was <laughs> producing viable literature. So which is to say that I... I sent stories around and I did get one, a couple editors who were interested. One actually came down from New York and we had lunch and I was elated. And she's like, you know, I love your work, Tope. But uh, if you, I had in, in the manuscript I'd submitted, there was a father character, very much like the father character in my book now. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And she's like, if you write about him and his journey to America, I can promise you that, you know, we'll give you an advance and it'll be incredible and we'll give you all the marketing support. But the story is actually about the father. It's not about his son. Wow. And, you know, I have like many people, you know, you hear from a lot of people that when you're on this writing journey, you will get some critical, tough advice and mm-hmm. you have to take it on if you want to become a better writer. Um, you can't be too kind of you can't mm-hmm. believe that you're the most incredible person. Right. That you, you have to kind of accept criticism. Mm-hmm. And so I did for a while. I was like, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe I need to you know, compromise the vision. Maybe the book is about the father. Maybe the book, and she had really sold me on it. Like, 
there's an ice cream episode in my yeah. book that had been in, has been in my book forever. And she's like, that's the core of the book. Like right from there, what happens to the father after that? That's where you need to go. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I promise you, I'll be here with like, you know, with, you know, it was almost like, you know, it was like, I was <laughs> it's like, like, so are you writing? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, for somebody who's desperate to be published, I was yeah. like, I need to do that. So I started writing that and everything in me said, no, this is not mm-hmm. it. This is not it. And I thought like, am I being stubborn? Am I not able to listen to criticism? And so I put the book aside for a while and I went back to it and I started, I, I tried to write that again and, and nothing was resonating. I just mm-hmm. couldn't do it. Um, so yeah, nothing happened for three years. And I was so desperate that I, uh, I threw in another story to the Kane prize in 2016, three years later was shortlisted again, went wow. back to London, did the whole thing, didn't win this time. But then after that, uh, an editor from Simon and Schuster actually, re- <laughs> uh, my agent reached out to him, um, and a guy named Iris Silverberg. And he called me up and said, I love the book and I want to acquire the book. Um, but of course, what happens is that when an editor wants to acquire the book, they still need to pitch it internally. Right, right. And so he says, I'll begin that process. And a few weeks later, he he got back to me and said, um, yeah, we'll acquire the book, but I need you to make certain changes. And so there's this process that happens when you get a book, an, a, a publishing house acquires the book, which is, you know, they'll give you a, a copy of your book with their edits on it. Mm-hmm. And he had literally like X'd out the middle 30 or 40, 50 pages of my book. He wow, just kind of X'd it out. And again, like, I was like, uh, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And I, we, 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 you know, I didn't like him for a while. <laughs> and there was, but then as I evaluated it, and this is the key, because as I evaluated what he said, I knew in the deepest part of me that he was right, that I needed mm. to go in a different direction. Mm. And to his credit, I think the book that emerged from it is much stronger than it would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's something to be said for listening to what's happening internally, because when this yeah. first editor had told me, to make these like big changes, I rejected that. But when yeah. he said that, and he specifically wrote why I should, his his arguments resonated. So okay, this story has been super harrowing. I went from <laughs> stars in my eyes, like the Oscar esque, yeah. and then somebody crossing out fifty pages of my book to horror. Um, <laughs> wow, yeah. that's 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 so crazy. Yeah. But I, that definitely resonates with me. I've had that experience already in the MFA program. Like certain professors would be like, "You need to completely rewrite this story." Yeah, and I was like, "Okay, I need to rewrite it." And then I just like couldn't. Yeah do it. I was like, I, I don't know how, and this isn't like, like you were saying, resonating in my soul yeah. <laughs> kind of a thing. So I went to a different professor who kind of disagreed and he had more to, you know, he had feedback that felt more true to me. So yeah. I think, you know, definitely needing to be able to take criticism, but also be like, discerning as well. Be exactly. discerning. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be discerning. Key, and that's sure. in another step, right? Because that's not, I don't think a, a lot of people talk about that critical step mm-hmm. you know which is yes we have to be able to take rejection for sure it's going to happen but, you know yes. forever as as an artist and you have to be able to understand that there is valid criticism of the work but i think as you get um as you begin to kind of master craft and your personal aesthetic what uh, it is yes. you're trying to project into the world you have to you begin to recognize when someone's advice doesn't align with the work you're trying to produce right, right? Mm-hmm. and i and think it, it takes a while to get there yeah it's i mean that's incredibly hard to do especially when you're young and starry-eyed and yeah and, you know and and have had all these things drilled into your mind that you know yes take take rejection yes yeah. listen to what they say they know better they've been in the business yes yeah. they're aware of all the things that are swirling yeah. that you're not part of um yeah. but yeah that i think there is a risk of compromising yeah a piece in that 
But I'm interested. You you mentioned uh, the the first editor or agent um, saying that you know who your audience is, trying to like gear the book towards mm-hmm. a specific audience. When I read the book, I really identified with the main character, just sort of feeling like an outcast, feeling like you don't belong in the place where you are. Um, so to me, it felt really universal, mm-hmm. and I wondered if that made it harder or easier to like narrow in on a on an audience that you could actually market the book to yeah i think that's a great question because i thought that way as well i I thought like i'm writing a story about a person who's trying to become a person basically Mm -hmm. and that's a story that a lot of people can relate to but even as the book was being marketed it was being marketed as an immigration story you know and i was really intrigued by that you know the first couple reviews that came out about the book mentioned that the protagonist was from nigeria and in the opening pages he announces that he was born in america so i think it says a lot about the way that people (laughs) <laughs> evaluate literature uh, by people with like sort of non sort of mm-hmm. European or English sounding names. There's an expectation mm. that it will be a certain kind of story. Um, so the great benefit I had was that my my editor recognized the kind of universality of of the character, if you will, and what he was experiencing. But once the marketing machine mm. stepped in, I remember vividly, um, you know, there's this process that happens when you're about the book is about to come out. And you'll meet with the per, the marketing person right. who's been assigned to you. And the marketing person who was assigned to me is a marvelous human being. I'm not meaning to malign her or shade her at all. But, you know, she said, you know, I need you. One thing they ask you to do is like kind of write op-eds that they can try mm-hmm. to try to place, you know, in various mm-hmm. places. And she's like, okay, I, I want you to write an op-ed about the immigration thing. And I was like, you know, I'm happy to do that. But I don't see my book as an immigration book. I think there are other kinds of things that are happening in my book mm-hmm. um, that aren't. And But I recognize what the house was trying to do. You know, they, they've yeah. sold books. You know, and I've I'd won the Kane Prize. You know, they've um they've sold books by African writers that are like you know sort of about these topics. Right. Mm. My book does address that topic in a way with the parents coming over. So she's like, okay, here's a way to kind of enter these households. And I felt really kind of upset about that because what I I have read a lot of immigration books, but that's not what I gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. I was reading a lot of autofiction. I was reading all kinds of things. Mm. And it was funny to me that I wasn't being positioned as that kind of writer. And I think it's because for a lot of people in that publishing world, they have a hard time conceiving of the notion that a person who looks like me can write a story that is earnestly about trying to become and that somebody in the middle of the country, say in Wichita, Kansas, can relate to that tale. Mm -hmm. And that was the argument that I was making all the time. Like, this is a person who is like any human being, he's been born and raised in this context. Mm-hmm. And like people all over the world, he doesn't feel like he fits in this context. So right. the question becomes, how do you surmount your circumstances to achieve a sense of self that aligns with what's happening inside? Mm-hmm. That's the core sort of narrative that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm tr- attempting to convey in the story. And I was, I tried again and again internally to say, well, I think this is a story about it. And like, yeah, yeah, maybe. But, you know, yeah. what about the immigration <laughs> thing? <laughs> and so it was hugely frustrating. Um and so they actually, you know, it's funny, um, for my book launch, I did the book launch of Politics and Prose, yeah. and they paired me with somebody who had written an immigration tale. And I was like, okay, that's fine. A prominent, fairly prominent person, I won't say her name, because <laughs> I was kind of upset with her. Because the day of, the, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of my launch, she uh, pulled out. She said something uh, else happened. Oh, so, no. like, I found out that day that I'd be doing it by myself. Well, and the night I woke up that morning to the news that um, Toni Morrison had passed oh, away. No. So I was like, oh, my gosh, like this happened. And I was kind of shaken by it. Yeah. But in the end, it was great because I was able to kind of frame the book the way I wanted to frame it at that event. And not just as a kind of immigration tale, but again, trying to reposition um, my tale. And I hope by extension, 
all kinds of stories mm-hmm. that aren't being sort of published or aren't being taken seriously because they're not aligning with a certain kind of narrative. Like, I guarantee you, if you're a person who looks like me or has a name that's similar to mine, and you write a book about, you know, like somebody coming to America or you write a book about slavery, there is a million dollar advance waiting for you if you're a good writer. <laughs> right, 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 that's right, true. Right, right. Yeah. No, but if you right. are trying to depart from that path, it might be more difficult. But yeah. I think for the sake of the art, it's critical that we kind of push against those boundaries and insist on, you know, sort of putting out different kinds of stories and insist on the viability of different aesthetics mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love that. Thank you for saying that. that was, yeah, it's definitely really a, well said. What we were getting at much less <laughs> eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you feel like that, that insistence, uh, you know, by like, I keep thinking about, you know, we toil away at these works of art you know, in private and it's very private and it's you and your words and it can be this nuanced, beautiful thing that you want to appeal to all of humanity and then people who want to make money get a hold of it. (laughs) And then they, you know, they, and that's their job and you want it to sell. So, you know, it's this, um, trying to, trying to like let all these things be, exist at the same time yeah um so i just wonder if that did that ever creep into the editing process absolutely yeah Yeah, it it creeps in all the time and one of for me one of the practices that i have maintained for a very long time is that i go to the museum every weekend Mm. um and i had to cut that off all different museums yeah 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 all different kinds of museums i spend i i will admit that i spend the bulk of my time now like the hirshhorn and the national gallery of art and the african art museum And uh, occasionally I'll go to other museums, the Phillips or something, but I spend most of my time there. And the reason why I do so is that, you know, and there are problems with visual art as well. I mean, like when you go to one of these museums, there is a kind of narrative that's being advanced. And the narrative is that like, um, you know, white men are the greatest artists of all time. And that's the trajectory. But at the same time, even in the midst of that, uh, you're constantly encountering stories about people who were doing things that weren't accepted, you know, Mm. in their moment. Mm -hmm. And they kind of, persevered right Mm -hmm. and for me that is incredibly inspirational because i think the art that changes the world inevitably is pushing up against boundaries and we are living in a context now where there are certain kinds of art that are popular and there's all kind of pressure to conform to that Mm -hmm. um but i think our responsibility as artists is to kind of go off in silence and and determine what it is that um that you're trying to convey into the world and then determine figure out a way to do it which means Mm -hmm. develop your craft right Mm -hmm. make sure that the craft is where it needs to be i think one of the most injurious practices for writers and i say this as someone who did do this is like you'll go online and read someone's list of like 10 tips to become a writer 10 (laughs) things you should avoid when you're writing you're like no semicolons no adverbs and i read all these lists (laughs) when i was growing up and i was like okay i have to avoid adverbs i can't but like inevitably when you read one of these lists this is a list about somebody who's from somebody who's saying like if you want to write like me this is what you need to do yeah so there's something to be said i think for developing your voice and get and having a solid sense of what your voice is and that Mm -hmm. might take years in my case, yeah. it took a decade, I think, to kind of arrive at a sense of voice where I said, I recognize myself on the page. It took a, lot, a while to get there. It took a lot of crap. But once you get there, then you have to learn how to stick to your guns. And you have to rely on the fact that, okay, I have the craft that I need to convey the story. I am a good writer. Mm-hmm. And it might take some t- people some time to recognize that. Mm-hmm. But I know what I want to put out in the world. And I've done it in a good way. And somebody will recognize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I get from, you know, if I'm looking at a, a painting by, I don't know, you know, Brock or Manet or Renoir, like they were all, they these were all people in their respective eras who were criticized for the work they were producing. Mm. Um, 
Duchamp, you know, like he's he's a prime example of this. And everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you can't take a toilet, you know, and then sort of turn it upside down (laughs) and claim this is a piece of art. But um, he knew that this was a reflection of his voice and he insisted on that. And then in the end, of course, people came around and said what he did was revolutionary. So there's something to be said, I think, for and I say this all the time, you know, to my students and to people who come up to me is that like the most important thing is to kind of go into a space and develop your voice, develop your craft. And then stick to your damn guns. And at some point, start somewhere. the revolution. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Just, yeah, get just go in for there. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meet me at the barricade. Yeah, exactly. Man. Let's go. Like... <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, gosh. I have to say, though, uh, it's super inspiring to hear you talk about sticking to your guns yeah. and, and being all about the art. But you're out here winning all these prizes. You just won yeah. the Whiting Award for fiction, right? Yeah, my gosh. <laughs> He's you know? like, yeah, I, I no, did do I mean, that. <laughs> so I have to say, that came completely out of nowhere. <laughs> completely out of nowhere. Like, I was in a place where, um, you know, so when my book came out, there was another, I, I don't think I'll, I'll speak as cryptically as possible, but <laughs> there was another book that my publishing house was putting out around the same time. Um, that was just getting all this attention. I remember I'd go on the, like the uh, Sam and Schuster Instagram page and there'd be like 25 <laughs> gazillion posts about this person's book. And then one little measly post with my book next to a, uh, you know, a cop, you know, a red and white cop, you know, for the, and I'd be like, it's a sad post, you know, with like two likes. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh man, they really don't care. So I had this sense that like, you know, like whatever. I mean, and there is a process that happens when the publishing house says, this is the book we're going to support. You know, we're going to put all our marketing muscle behind this. We're going to tweet a gazillion times. We're going to get our influencers to talk about that. And for whatever reason, my book was not in that lane. Mm. And there were, you know, like my editor at, at Simon and Schuster had had success with, you know, books like the debut novels that he had published were doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, I just didn't, my book wasn't getting that sort of attention um, and then something interesting happened. It was really fascinating because, um, you know, right before my book came out, my editor left the house. And so my book was orphaned. And oh. there was a... Um, oh, I've read about this. this yeah, is, it was really... And good. so was... And the editor who stepped in was a marvelous person, but she hadn't acquired the book. Um, and so I think it maybe limited her ability to kind mm-hmm. of sort of pitch the book internally, talk about the book internally. And so I, my book was in this kind of weird space. And and I, I, I want to be honest because like I felt that way. And then... I was the I was profiled in the Times before the book came out. Mm-hmm. And I thought that when that happened, okay, like I'm sure that had, you know, like the publishing house had something to do with that. But I thought after that happened, okay, I'm gonna get the support things from Simon and Schuster. Yeah. And it didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. And so like the book came out, things happen. And then, you know, the the pandemic happens mm-hmm. and you know, like everything that I was doing on book tour stopped more right. or less. <clears throat> and so I thought, okay, well, that's that. And so I was hanging out like in in February, I think it was, and um, talking with someone in New York Mm -hmm. and the call dropped. And so I was like, okay. And then I saw a New York number calling. So I was like, hey, like I was saying, and I did my whole thing. And then she was like, excuse me. And I was like, wait, who are you? And she's like, I'm calling from the Whiting Foundation. And the moment she said that, I was like, what? Yeah, it was like... I was like, what? Wait, what? That's not the call I was <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Happy. Like, it was so surreal. Because so of the context. Surreal. And I, I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, I'm from the Whiting Foundation. I'm just calling to tell you that you've won a Whiting oh Award for. And it was, yeah, my head, like, I, I was completely not expecting that, completely out of nowhere. 
Um, and then, you know, I, wow. I've known about the whiting, of course, for a while in the process, but then I went to go read more about the process. And I think they have like 100 nominators who like nominate books. And then I think it's six people who sit in a room and try to decide. And they have, I think it's across four or five categories, like nonfiction, fiction, uh, sort of playwriting and mm -hmm. poetry. I think those are the categories. And so they decide, you know, like they pick 10 people and put them in these four categories. And I mean, the, the idea that there was somebody out there who nominated the book and then that these six people decided that my book was worthy of this, like, it's still like incredible to believe, especially when Amazing. I think about the journey to getting the book out. And then the fact that throughout the process of, of talking about the book, yeah. I didn't feel like I was being supported. Um, and then for this to happen, like, it's an incredible thing. So again, I think it's, I'll say two things. One, I don't think it's good to like fetishize prizes because <laughs> if you're like, you know, like uh, maybe I'm speaking from a certain vantage point and people don't take me seriously, but I, I do think you can't write for prizes. For pri you yeah, can't yeah, yeah. write thinking like, gosh, I want this. Um, so that's one way. But at the same time, I would say that if you are in a place where you, you, you're you sure the craft is where it needs to be, you've done the work, that people will recognize Someone's it. Gonna, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that means, yeah. and that means prizes, that's a great thing. Um, and, and it likely will happen. But if you, but it, it, it accompanies the process of like really spending that time with yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the backstory for me is that I came to the US to write. I was working at Google um, in London for a year and a half. And then I got this bonus and I thought like the one thing I actually want to do is I want to be a writer. So I came to the States. I, you know, rented a cheap apartment and I next to policies and pro so I could go there and, and watch writers. <laughs> and I was so broke that I couldn't buy books. So I'd go to the bookstore <laughs> and I copy. Them. Yeah, I would copy like the poems into a book that I would carry with me. And so I'd like steal poetry from <laughs> politics and prose. And then the financial crisis happened and I didn't work for a year and a half and I wow. was broke. I was sad. I stopped going on social media because I saw my friends doing these exciting things doing and stuff, I was yeah. like growing my bohemian artist beard and nobody <laughs> wanted to hire me i was sad and dejected and in that period of, of my life i thought well i want to be an artist so i'll do whatever it takes and the great thing about living in dc is that i could still go to museums you for can, free yeah i could still go to mm -hmm. like you know people were putting on plays i could go to the embassies you know you could come to the inner loop i could come to the inner loop <laughs> no you guys are doing incredible stuff and the community you've built is incredible and i'm so in awe of it and grateful for it as well and um so those kinds of things like helped me immeasurably. And, and I, that was a moment where I had a decision, like either I can abandon this project or I can sort of dig in and believe in myself. Mm -hmm. And so this happened back in 08, 09. And mm. I think it was a process yeah. of like saying, I, even without an MFA, without any connection, discernible connection to the literary world that I have something to say and I can learn how to say it. And so it is edifying, you know, like many years down the road to get something like the Whiting Award. But I would say to anyone out there who's interested in that trajectory, that like the first critical step is like, getting the work where it needs to be and believing in yourself mm -hmm. like faith. I know a lot of writers aren't religious, you know, but faith is important. Like yeah. faith is the key component of it because you're going to get lots of rejections. Oh my goodness. People are going to hate on you. So <laughs> you're going to go on Twitter and see everybody talking about the same, you know, ARC they have or whatever. Right. And it's going to be maddening. You need yeah. constant persistence. Constant per you know, I'd go to the mirror, shout out to Issa Rae. And I'd be like, you got it. <laughs> you know, you can do it, you know, whatever. Yeah, Luckily. you got to do whatever you got to do to keep yourself going back to the laptop or the notepad or whatever and, and to keep producing work because totally. the world will constantly beat you down. Yeah. So mm -hmm. faith is a major part of that. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. I know. Like, oh, yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Well, with that 
amazing introduction. I feel like we got to hear a little bit of this. Book. Was that the introduction? <laughs> well, w- like all of these prizes, just like oh gosh, being... uh, yeah. <laughs> no, where am I? I don't know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Toby is going to read. I know. Cool. I'm just losing track of life. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I think a lot of us are. Uh, I just read from the beginning. Uh, and excuse, I don't know how I sound, but I feel like I sound horrible because of this allergy thing that's happening. You but, don't at all. Okay, I'll give it a shot anyway. She told me I could serve her in heaven. She accompanied me to school each day. School was about a mile away and a few hundred feet into my track. Just as my family's apartment building drifted out of view behind me, she would appear at my side. I don't remember how she looked. Memory often summons a generic figure in her place. An elderly white woman with frizzled gray hair, slightly bent over a smile featuring an assortment of gaps and silver linings. I do remember her touch, however. It felt cool and papery, disarmingly comfortable on the hottest days of fall. She would often pat my head as we walked together, and the penetrating silence would cancel the morning sounds around us. I felt comfortable, protected somehow in her presence. She never walked all the way to school with me, but her parting words were always the same. Remember, if you are a good boy here on earth, you can serve me in heaven. I was five years old, Her words sounded magical to me, vast and alluring. I didn't know her, I barely knew her name, but the offer she held out to me each morning seemed far too generous to dismiss lightly. In class, I would think about what servitude in heaven would be like. I imagined myself carrying buckets of water for for her on streets of gold, rubbing her feet as angels sang praises in the background. I imagined that I had my own heavenly shack. I'd have time to do my own personal heavenly things as well. How else would I get to heaven? One day I told my father about her offer. We were talking about heaven, a favorite subject of his, and I mentioned that I already had a place there. I've already found someone to serve, I said. What do you mean? My father smiled warmly at me. I felt his love. I repeated myself. Daddy, I'm going to heaven. And how are you going to get there? I told him about about the old lady, my heavenly shack, the streets of gold. My father stared at me a moment, grief and sadness surging briefly to the surface of his face, and then anger. He leaned forward, stared into my eyes. Listen to me now. The only person you will serve in heaven is God. You will serve no one else. Mm. Thanks. It's such a good opening to the book because it's got that surreality. It's, mm-hmm. It is magical and it makes more sense the more like the further you get in the book. But when you first read that, you're like, what's happening? Well, you can be at any place in time there, right? Yeah. Like, even in, well, and part of it is the way you read, which is lovely, <laughs> but you get the sense that you're already on that journey with him, like from the jump and you're envisioning those paved golden streets and happen with him. And, but then we have this knowledge as the readers of all of the, like, just horrendous heaviness <clears throat> that goes with it. So it's this very weird cognitive dissonance in like, the beauty that the child is seeing and the absolute horror the that darkness. is the reality of what's happening. And also that he's he's sort of already experiencing like right. a self that's being imposed exactly. upon him that he then struggles with for the rest of the book. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um and yeah, it's it's funny because it, as I think back to about the way that people uh, I should uh, let me be more specific the pe- the way that like the publishing house Shout out to Simon and Schuster, by the way. <laughs> the way that they wanted to talk about the book, I think is that, like, I am obsessed with, you know, first of all, like sci-fi and fantasy. And I think that definitely filters into my work. Yeah. Like whenever I'm chilling, mm-hmm. I'm like watching sci-fi or fantasy. That's all I read when I was growing up. 
And for me, like one of the major, I think, revolutions that happened in my writing life is that when I when I began to read like Kafka and Borges when mm -hmm. I was a bit older, because the way they told tales, it was directly kind of similar to the way that the kind of stories I heard when I was growing up. My dad mm. would tell me these tales all the time. Like the oral history. The oral history is yeah. where like reality, reality is constantly being is yes. under is constantly being redefined. Mm -hmm. There is no line between reality and whatever its opposite might be. They like yeah. constantly mix. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it's in the West where there is there are these hard and fast lines between reality yeah. and everything else. And so um, I think it, when I'm producing art, like I don't acknowledge those lines between the two. And mm -hmm. that happens in fantasy, that happens in science fiction, and that happens in the work in Kafka and Borges. And I think like, um, I was intrigued. I, I, I kind of hoped that that would be the kind of blind the kind of inquiry mm -hmm. that, um, first of all, the critics would have when they engage with the work and even as the book is being marketed. But <clears throat> I hope this begins to happen as time passes that people look beyond, even at this moment, like of racial reckoning that mm -hmm. happened last year and the response to that, like all of that has been around like, okay, stories about like police brutality, stories about this and that. These are all incredibly important stories. But I think a lot of times when people look to marginalized communities or people of color, whatever, for, they're looking for stories about how these people are. Like, you know, it's like I get into a taxi with an Ethiopian cab driver. I want to know more about his life and his journey here. Not about, you know, the kind of person he is, why he is the way he mm -hmm. is. That's a different kind of story. And I hope we're getting to a place where people value those kinds those of stories, stories. Mm -hmm. and not just like, I read this thing in the news, I want to know about it. And then, because then I'll abandon it and I'll go back to reading my, you know, so whatever, not to, you know, but um, <laughs> I'll go back to reading whatever it was I was reading before, as opposed to thinking that this is a story about someone who is like me in a different context, perhaps, yeah. but this is like, this is another right. human being who's trying to reckon with, you know, life right now. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that definitely comes through as well in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been an amazing discussion. Uh, you can buy Tope's book, A Particular Kind of Black Man, at your local bookseller or on bookshop.org. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Um, would you stick around for a little writing prompt? Absolutely. I'd love to. Awesome. Also, not only can you buy the book, you should. It's sure. really good. <laughs> Appreciate it. And thanks to both of you for this platform, for all the wonderful work you're doing. I truly appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. The writing community of DC appreciates it. So we're, we're grateful. Well, we're, we're equally grateful for the community. So up next, a mundane everyday activity becomes the gateway to another dimension. Speaking of sci-fi, stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We turn now to my personal favorite, writing prompts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the bane of Courtney's existence. You know, I, it's part I, of why I love it, honestly. I know. I always <laughs> hate it in the moment, but then I go back and like some of them have been really, really fruitful. good. Yes. Yeah. Right? Eventually. I mean, you should turn like, each one. It takes a, into lot, a, a, lot of, a lot of steps later. <laughs> well, I'm pretty excited about this particular prompt, uh, prompt, which was inspired by Tope's book, A Particular Kind of Black Man. In the book, the main character starts to question his own mind, experiencing two opposing memories of the same time frame, increasingly unable to tell what is real and what is not. So this kind of reminded me of magical realism, which yeah. I'm a big fan of. I can't write it, but I love it. I've been um, reading a lot of I Am Day lately, and I'm just like in that world. Yeah. Or the many worlds. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such rich, beautiful work. I wish I could do it. I'm a nonfiction writer. So my uh, my product is not very magical but um, <laughs> the prompt was to write um oh courtney you want to say what the prompt was yeah <laughs> it was like, i'm losing it was, i'm losing it's it fine. it was to write a mundane everyday activity that opens into a parallel sorry parallel universe so um i'm who wants to go first? Because uh, I'm happy to go first. <laughs> the I mask... feel like we should save the best for last. No, no, no. I, no. The reason I'm going first is that this is probably a, a hot mess. I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, I wasn't ready, but here we go. Um, I wake up, rub my eyes, and feel for the familiar warmth next to me. Nothing. I look over and notice she's not there. I smile. Finally, I say to myself, finally she has learned how to sleep by herself. I jump out of bed and practically skip to her room. She's up, one leg crossed over the other, looking, looking at me like she's been waiting for me to show up. I have a flashback to 20 or so years ago when I used to show up at home well after my curfew and my father would be sitting on the stairs in almost the exact same pose. My beautiful daughter, I say. I can feel the broad smile on my face. My daughter looks confused. Daughter? I'm not a girl, she says in her playful voice. My wife walks in. Tope, you need to stop. You, wait, let's see. You had two tries and you gave us two boys. You had your chance. I look at my daughter and realize she doesn't look like my daughter. She looks like my son. That was my, <laughs> that was my shot. <laughs> I actually love how you walk in and she's just like sitting yeah, there. Just, I know. <laughs> like, where have you been? <laughs> it's weird because like toddlers have a way of, of, Making everything feel surreal. Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because they're absolutely well, their yeah. perception of time is so different of ours from ours. So I think that's part of it. Right? Yeah. It's like it's like, well, I've just been I've just been here all this time. Didn't you realize? That? Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. there are such moments of clarity and right. perspective mm -hmm. that they have occasionally. Like I am blown out of water by some of the things that my daughter says that mm -hmm. they, they feel really mature right and i'm like how is that coming but then like the emo like so there's this intelligence that outpaces the emotional sort of ability right. to yes. kind of like be in the world yeah and then she'll throw an epic tantrum right. and i'm like how can the person who said <laughs> this like really enlightened thing yeah like lose it over not wearing her pink dress right. that's dirty she's worn it four days in a row like you can't wear it but <laughs> so. so true yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like they don't it's they have access to the, all all of the stuff that we knew that we have now filtered or like, yeah, like built things on top of. And it's yeah. just it's raw and unfiltered. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's in a way it's more true than your regular interactions because right. you're like, I definitely feel that way. Yeah. On the inside all exactly. the time. Yeah. Like my coffee's not hot enough. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
It's a more honest way to live. If you yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So note to note to listeners: if you want to do magical realism, toddlers are your exactly. Way. It's They're a gateway. Portal. It's a gateway. I feel like I should go next because yeah. uh, I have a little bit of toddlerness. In Great. Me too. Although mine didn't get very magical. I'm, I'm sorry. Mine didn't either. It's very short. I don't know how you guys do this in that amount of time. I have like five words. <laughs> anyway. Elmo calls, grab your toothbrush, everybody. And we're off. Back and forth, round and round circles. Bristles polishing bone, molecule by molecule, crevices, mounds, round and crooked. The high-pitched voice grows distant. A white foaming tide rises, rushes over and under the formations, washing out every living thing, taking up residence in the dark spaces, the tight spots, the little bits of nowhere that stay unseen, now empty. I love that. Yeah. I love that. First of all, like, I know the song you're referencing. I, <laughs> I've heard that too many times from... <laughs> Twice so, a day, every yeah. day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but it, it is magical. Like it does. I love that. Yeah, you can start to envision the world yeah. like inside the yeah. Um, I'm also just it's very funny to me because there's themes and I know it's like a mundane activity, right? But it's like you waking it's the up. waking up and the brushing the teeth, and that was ex- like exactly what I also started yeah. Yeah. with. I was like, why is that the thing we all chose? Because you never like realize how much time you spend doing these things yeah. until you have to like teach a kid to do it. Absolutely. And they're just like, uh, okay. really? Do yeah. I have to brush my teeth again? Exactly. And you're like, I know. Uh, right? I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But- I mean, I was thinking about this morning as I was slightly hungover. Apologies. <laughs> I was like, God, it's going to feel so much better when I. Do <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. I don't. I'm gonna see if I can actually read this illegible stuff. Um, she's she shuffled to the sink, eyes bleary and barely open. Not that they'd need to be. She stepped the path from bed to bath. How many times in the last twenty years? The broad wood plank floor received her feet over and over. In the mornings like this one, when the day ahead would fall into the predictable patterns of midlife, in the late hours when her children still nursed in her arms, back and forth from the bed to porcelain, swaying, floating, existing in multiple planes, the wide-planed pine grounded her. That's all I've got. I like it. Wide-planed pine. Some alliteration at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Hey. Hey, Hey, some poetry. (laughs) I've been accused. Oh my goodness. That was awesome. Thank you so that much, really Dilfer. Oh, thank you. That yeah. was fun. That was great. Yeah. And that's our show. We'll be back on uh, some Mondays. Sometimes. S- sometimes. You know. <laughs> um, but the Inner Loop is not just a podcast, believe it or not. That's right. We do readings, retreats, workshops, a summer residency, and more. And more. To read all about it, please visit us at theinnerlooplit.org, where you can also donate to support us and local literature and fun stuff like this. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the interview lit today's episode was produced by me rachel kuntz our theme music is by andrew logan and our technical advisor is james skinner thanks again to tope falaran for joining us on the show if you enjoyed today's episode shout it from the rooftops or better yet leave us a review such as there are infinite parallel universes but in every one the inner loop radio is a hit Wow, that was a good one, Rach. I like that one. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Right on, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>